Tracy McCauley. And I'm Liz Zuleika. We are cardiology pharmacists, educators, and self-declared literature crusaders. And welcome to Cardioscripts, a cardiology podcast brought to you in collaboration with the ACCP Cardiology Practice and Research Network. On this episode of Cardioscripts, Dr. Jessica Carey discusses the Voyager PAD trial. Enjoy the episode. So today on Cardioscripts, we are so excited to be joined by Dr. Jessica Carey. Dr. Carey completed both her undergraduate and doctor of pharmacy training at the University of Utah. She went on to complete her PGY-1 residency at the University of Utah Health Residency Program. During her residency year, she staffed with the cardiovascular medicine pharmacy team, and after graduating from her PGY-1, she took a full-time position as a cardiovascular medicine pharmacist at the University of Utah. She and a colleague recently created a cardiovascular medicine spring semester course for the College of Pharmacy. She enjoys working with the multidisciplinary staff, counseling patients, teaching students and residents, and giving back to the college as an alumni. And today, she is also giving back by taking time out of her busy schedule to join us on Cardioscripts. So Jessica, thank you for coming on today. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited. So today we're going to be talking about the Voyager PAD trial. This was presented in March of 2020, and the purpose was to assess if there is ischemic benefit with adding a low-dose rivaroxaban to aspirin in patients with symptomatic peripheral artery disease, or PAD, who had undergone lower extremity revascularization. This was a multi-center randomized controlled trial with patients assigned in a one-to-one ratio to rivaroxaban 2.5 milligrams twice daily or placebo. All patients received a baseline of aspirin 100 milligrams daily and clopidogrel use was allowed for up to six months after revascularization at investigator discretion. The primary efficacy outcome was this combination of acute limb ischemia, major amputation for vascular causes, myocardial infarction, ischemic stroke, or death from cardiovascular causes. The primary safety outcome was bleeding defined by the thrombolysis in myocardial infarction or TIMI classification. Patients were included if they were at least 50 years or older and had documented lower extremity PAD. So they had to have symptoms. They also had to have anatomical evidence and they also had to have hemodynamic evidence. Um, And patients were also included after successful revascularization within the previous 10 days for having symptoms of PAD. Patients were excluded if they were clinically unstable, had a heightened risk for bleeding, if they were taking or anticipated to start prohibited concomitant medications, or had a documented history of intracranial hemorrhage, stroke, or transient ischemic attack. A total of 6,564 patients were randomized, and the median follow-up time was 28 months. About a third of patients in both the rivaroxaban and placebo group discontinued treatment prematurely. Patients that were included had a median age of 67, about a quarter of patients were female, 81% white, 2.4% black, 10.6% of those included were from North America, about 80% had hypertension, 60% hyperlipidemia, 35% were current smokers, about 40% had type 2 diabetes, 
roughly 30% symptomatic coronary artery disease, and about 10% had a history of myocardial infarction. The median ankle brachial index was 0.56. 95% of patients had a history of claudication, 30% a history of critical limb ischemia, and 6% previous amputation. In terms of baseline medications, about 80% were on a statin, 63% on an ACE or ARB, and 99% on aspirin at randomization. About half of patients were on clopidogrel at randomization. Primary outcome occurred in 508 patients in the RIVA group and 584 patients in the placebo group. The Kaplan-Meier estimates of the incidence at three years were 17.3% and 19.9% in the rivaroxaban and placebo groups, respectively, with a p-value of 0.009. Um, an absolute risk reduction of 2% was found at one year. This came out to a number needed to treat of 50. With regards to the principal safety outcome of Timmy major bleeding during follow-up, this occurred in 62 patients in the RIVA group and 44 patients in the placebo group, with Kaplan-Meier estimates of the incidence at three years of 2.65% and 1.87%, respectively, with a p-value of 0.07. This was not found to be a statistically significant difference. They did find a statistically significant difference, though, when they looked at ISTH major bleeding. It occurred uh, at an incidence of 4.3% in the RIVA group and about 3% in the placebo group. So that is an overview of the Voyager PAD trial. And so Jessica, I think even before jumping into the trial, could you take a minute to kind of walk us through how we go about managing antithrombotics in our PAD patients and, and kind of what some of the literature is with regards to driving these recommendations? Absolutely, so historically, I mean, peripheral artery disease has its own prognostic value, but it's typically found in patients that also have coronary artery disease, cerebrovascular disease. But strangely, the therapy that we use to treat coronary artery disease has not been found to have the same benefit in peripheral artery disease. For example, post-stenting in coronary artery disease, we have robust data for DAPT therapy. However, um, in our peripheral artery disease patient, DAPT has not been shown to be very helpful. Sometimes some of the historical studies have looked at subpopulations and maybe found some benefit, but for the most part, uh, most outcomes have not been prevented in those patients. Very few trials exist in the post-revascularization PAD patient population. Most of them are in the stable PAD patient population with maybe less symptomatic claudication. Some of these trials include like a grouping of vascular disease patients, so they only make up a certain population of the whole study group anyways. And so antiplatelet therapy has been amplified in some studies, uh, like the CASPER trial is maybe the one that most relates to DAPT in our post-revascularization patients. The Dutch BOA trial tried adding a vitamin K antagonist to aspirin and showed that there wasn't benefit in outcomes post-revascularization in PAD and actually just cause more severe bleeding events. And so I think the issue is mechanistically, we don't have the same answers that we do for peripheral artery disease than we do for some of these other vascular disease states that we treat. And so the idea is that, well, maybe with some of these newer trials like Atlas, Timmy 51 and Compass, which recently tried using 
this factor 10A inhibitor, Xarelto, to target thrombin, which is a different target, knowing that thrombin interacts with platelet inhibition and fibrin deposition, uh, maybe a new route, and also trying a low dose of anticoagulation instead of full anticoagulation is kind of this unique idea of seeing if we can prevent these outcomes in our peripheral artery disease patients. And so after reading Voyager and kind of reading back through the studies that have been done, this is really a breakthrough trial because not only did Voyager include a 100% peripheral artery disease patient population, they were symptomatic, uh, claudication patients, maybe a little bit more severe, and post-revascularization in an era where endovascular procedures are more common and also include surgical population, whereas some of our other trials that we have were just purely surgical. So I really think Voyager not only captures what's going on in the PAD world right now, but also trying this new method of an antithrombotic regimen give a little bit more background. It's, you know, estimated that peripheral revascularization was performed somewhere in like 850,000 patients in 2013. And we've seen this increase in revascularization just mm -hmm. being done in general. Would you mind taking a minute to kind of talk about interventions that we have for these patients? So mm -hmm. endovascular as, as well as surgical, and is there significance in terms of, you know, the site of intervention? or do we even have enough data to, to say? Absolutely, so when I was reading this trial, I wondered what the difference was between you know, endovascular and surgical, and as a pharmacist, sometimes that's a little bit tricky to understand, so I actually talked to one of our interventionalists here. And over time, so in the 90s, we had kind of more uh, data that surgical had better outcomes or bypass than our endovascular procedures. And endovascular doesn't always mean the patient is stented. It often depends on the site. You certainly don't want to place a stent in a highly mobile area like a joint. But as time has moved on, similar to our stenting in coronary artery disease, the stents and endovascular procedures have improved. And so you actually see there's a newer study that came out in the 2000s that showed uh, more benefit in endovascular procedures over surgical. And reading more about that, it's really patient-dependent, surgeon-dependent, interventionalist-dependent. As far as outcomes, endovascular typically has higher event rate about 30 days post-procedure than surgical, but for the long-term has been shown to have longer improved outcomes than surgical. And so having both of these included in this trial, I think was extremely important to show benefit in both of these patient populations. And um, one other comment is I think most people that in this study that underwent endovascular were also uh, kept on their Plavix. So interestingly, those who underwent the endovascular procedure, more of those patients were on, kept on that Plavix for at least that six month minimum timeframe, which maybe goes along with what we know about stenting and other areas. Now, jumping into Voyager, what were your overall thoughts when you read through the trial? I'm very excited about it. I think this is actually a really big breakthrough for these patients. It just sounds like there's not a lot of evidence to support what we should do for these patients post-revascularization. I think that some of the things that make this study really strong is that 100% of the patients were peripheral artery disease, and they also were 10 days post-revascularization. This wasn't like, I think, Encompass, on average, they could have been seven years out from their previous event, whereas this trial was directly post-revascularization, and they were more symptomatic patients, whereas maybe 
looking at the previous data, some providers might want to jump to warfarin in these patients with aspirin or dual antiplatelet therapy, but the data is just not that strong there. So I'm glad that the patient population included these patients. I really liked that they included Plavix for up to six months. And the reason for that is I know of one trial that compared DAP versus warfarin and aspirin and didn't find much difference between the two. So I don't think a head-to-head trial of DAP versus low-dose relto and aspirin would have been that beneficial or maybe even ethical because we know that doesn't really work. But including that, they did find that the benefits with Plavix, there was no benefit over taking DAP with Xarelto versus just aspirin and Xarelto when they broke down those groups. And so I think they were able to take kind of a real world world scenario where providers might be following the guidelines because it is a low level recommendation to use DAPT after a procedure like this. But I think this trial showed that DAPT may not be needed and could be potentially harmful with an increased bleeding risk. Um, interesting thing to think about is you look at the bleed risk. If you compare it to the bleeding in Compass, I'm not really sure that you can compare the two because Compass was a situation where it was to prevent secondary outcomes, but it wasn't in the acute setting. And in this study, it was immediate post-revascularization. And frequently, we accept a certain bleed risk after post-revascularization. And as I mean, prasugrel and aspirin, ticagrelor and aspirin all inherently have a bleed risk. And so given these this data, I'm, I was actually really happy with the bleeding outcomes because I thought this is really impressive that we can use something at a low dose versus warfarin that has been studied at higher INR goals. And I really think that the risk benefit profile here is looking really good for these patients. Can you kind of walk us through how you would go about managing antithrombotic therapy in these PAD patients? Yeah, so I think that the guidelines, and they talk about, you know, a stable PAD, maybe no antiplatelet therapy, then you have your population with worsening claudication that they may recommend single antiplatelet therapy or SAP. And for the patients that are now revascularized, I would recommend aspirin plus Xarelto 2.5 twice a day. I think where we're going to, you know, run into issues is if a patient had been uh, recently stented for coronary artery disease or acute coronary syndrome, and they're already on dual antiplatelet therapy. I don't know that I would add Xarelto 2.5 BID to that because of the bleeding risk that we've seen, and they were excluded from the study. I think if somebody needs to be on therapeutic anticoagulation uh, for something else like stroke prevention or a clot, they may or may not be undergoing a procedure like this, but if that's the case, I certainly wouldn't reduce the dose to Xarelto 2.5 twice a day. So I think in those patients, aspirin 81 and then kept on their current antithrombotic therapy is appropriate. And so I think this is just for a specific population of patients who have been revascularized for their lower extremity PID. And the question is, you know, what next? Is it just aspirin 81? Is it aspirin plus warfarin or DAPT? And I think after this trial, the answer is aspirin 81 plus Xarelto 2.5 twice a day. Well, Jessica, thank you so much for your time and for joining us on CardioScripts today. In our next episode of CardioScripts, we'll talk about some oldies, but goodies, with regards to heart failure. Thanks for tuning in to CardioScripts. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please tell your friends and subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter, at CardioScripts, and check out our website at CardioScripts.com. Thanks for listening. The views and opinions are those of the individuals on today's episode. The ACCP Cardiology PRN is not responsible for the presented content or its accuracy.